Miracy. I think sometimes in our industry and as a financial advisor, there's an over-focus on the future. And we want our advisors, our staff, to also be focused on the present, which is a big part of Buddhist philosophy, is living well in this present moment. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the positional power they get comes with an equal measure of personal responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We get to learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. Joining me today is Spencer Sherman. After earning an MBA from Wharton and launching his career at a large Philadelphia brokerage firm, Spencer became disillusioned with the commission-based model of his and many other brokerage houses. But luck comes in strange ways, and the worst commercial fire in Philadelphia's history destroyed most of the firm's building and all of Spencer's files and his computer. With that blank slate, Spencer changed his focus. From his home office, he set out to build a different kind of financial firm, and specifically one that did not advise clients based on commissions they received. From that solo start, Spencer grew Abacus Wealth into a B Corp with a current team of about 70 people. It's a real Phoenix rising from the ashes story, and I'm so honored to have him here. Welcome to the show, Spencer. I'm so grateful for this chance to discuss your leadership journey. It's so wonderful to to be here today, Sharon, and, and great to have met you in person in this day and age, right? I know, really true. So we kind of have to start with the big fire, since that's not a typical turning point for most people. So tell us a little bit about that and maybe a little bit about how you felt in the immediate aftermath. Yeah, so I think maybe what is universal is that we all have some really bad days in our lives. And the fire story represents what I think of as the worst day in my life. And somehow it became, in retrospect, the best day in my life. Because it really opened me to this very narrow path I was on, this workaholic path, this drive to just accumulate more and more money, more and more power, and this complete abandonment of my own care. So much so that I was willing to convince a fire marshal to let me into a building that was still unsafe as the Philadelphia Fire Department was putting out the fire. I convinced this fire marshal to let me into this building to retrieve what turned out to be, of course, my worthless laptop. And just remember the panic attack that I had, the, the agony that I had going through these murky water, darkened hallways into that high-rise building in downtown Philadelphia across from Independence Square, and then coming out with this worthless laptop. And it's like, this is what I risked my life for, electrocution asbestos. It was this incredible lightning rod wake up. And 
I don't know if that's always been the case that I've seen the worst that, moments in my life as opportunities, but somehow that drove me to such a level of despair that I knew I needed some strong medicine. And I signed up for a 10-day silent meditation retreat. I had seen, I have to confess, I had actually noticed that the Wall Street Journal had done an article about all these CEOs from public companies going on these meditation retreats to get perspective, to get spaciousness back into their cluttered minds. So I said, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me, especially after this experience where I was just so upside down about reality, thinking that my my laptop was more valuable than my life. And was that the first time you had been to a long, silent retreat? Yes. Yes. So that must have been pretty weird. It was weird. And what was incredible is that it was such a Spartan life, such simple food, the most simple accommodations of this little mattress on this sort of closet-sized floor, and no possessions, no laptop, no phone, no frills. And yet I moved from a family that believed that money is more important than anything. The material world is more important than anything. And in the space of this this 10-day silent retreat with nothing material, I start experiencing a sense of wellness, a sense of fullness Mm. that felt more robust, uh, more fulfilling, more wholesome than any amount of material wealth or uh, possessions I had ever experienced before. Uh, So that was another wake up that, wow, this message that I got early on, that money, power were more important than anything, turned out to not be true, ultimately, you know, with with the fire story. And then on the meditation retreat, this awakening to that there's a lot of richness in the simplicity of life as well. That that is, of course, something I know that you and I share. I I will say I've only made it through a three-day silent meditation retreat, and even that was pretty stunning. So you're inspiring me to maybe try something longer. Yeah. Right? So, so, but then you went from this position into thinking, well, I'm going to build a financial advisory firm. So square that for us, because that's really interesting. Yes. Yeah. So the fire was the lightning rod for me to also do the meditation retreat it was also lightning rod to leave this large investment firm where I had been working and start dipping my toe into offering financial plans to individuals. I'd gotten permission from the firm to do some, at that time, financial planning was a relatively new thing. So I really felt like the fire kind of released me from the confines of my thinking. And Mm. that's, you know, often we don't know that we're in that limited mode of thinking until something happens. And with the fire, I realized, wow, I've been holding myself back from doing something perhaps much more interesting and maybe challenging, but much more exciting than just working for this large investment firm. I had the idea, why don't I start building this business? And, and it was hard at first. My first year I made, you know, half as much income as I had made working for the large investment firm, uh, and took on all this risk. And my first employee quit in a week because she said to me, you know, (laughs) In order for you to have an employee working for you, you need to know how to delegate. You do not know how to delegate. So I'm quitting. <laughs> so there was some cold water, you know, uh, thrown at me in those for in that first year or so. But then I think necessity is the mother of invention. It got me out doing things. And 
I remember that I started asking law firms. I, you know, I think part of me always wanted to be a lawyer. So I started asking lawyers that I, and I knew a lot of lawyers in Philadelphia. And I said, can I come speak at your firm? And a very large firm, let me speak. And that led to some of my first clients. And from there, it just grew. And so what was it about the commission model that you didn't like? And maybe talk a little bit about how you set out the values that were going to underpin Abacus Wealth as it as it took form. Thank you. Thank you. Because that's really what was it. I'd say the biggest driver was this conflict of interest that I felt inside. So when my boss said to me, you know, instead of recommending this investment, if you recommend this other one, there's really no difference in terms of the client's eyes, but you'll earn a bigger commission. Now, of course, the, the fine print is if the client ends up get quitting the investment on the early side, it's worse for the client. But chances are, my boss said, they'll, they won't leave the investment. They'll be no worse off. You'll be better off. The firm will be better off. And that just never sat well with me. Mm. That whole idea that A, certain products earn more money than other products and certain products like treasury bonds, for example, earned no money. And I, you know, this is kind of funny. This Maybe this kind of reveals my weirdness, but I got so excited about the possibility of being able to say to someone, do X. And I don't have to think about how I'm getting compensated for that. I'm getting compensated the same when I say do X or whether I say do Y. That was actually so thrilling to me. Like there was this so much freedom in that because in the investment firm, there was such guardrails on what you could recommend in order to earn your living. I wanted to create a firm where the advisors could recommend anything to the clients and still earn a living. And what, in fact, there was no connection between what they recommended and what they earned. So that was really the inspiration for the firm. And I think the other part of it was to understand that, I mean, after that fire situation, I understood that there's so much more going on with money than just the dollars and cents. There's all these emotions. There's these beliefs. Like I had the belief that money is more important than anything, which drove me to do something really crazy. But it drives us as business leaders to do some impulsive or crazy things at times. So I wanted to create a firm where there was this recognition of that and that recognition of that in the clients that our job isn't just to maximize someone's assets. It's to maximize both their assets and their whole life, their happiness and well-being. Was it uncommon at that time for firms to be taking that approach or was that already happening out in the market? No, I think it was uncommon then. I think it's still somewhat uncommon. And I don't totally fault the financial industry. It's, it's the cultures driving us also. The fee structures are driving us also. It's hard to measure well-being. So we charge on assets under management or we charge based on transactions. So I think what was really distinct then was the focus on financial planning, that we wanted to dive into the complete picture of someone's life and make sure that the money they were earning at work, the money that they were earning with their investments, all the ways they were doing that aligned with their values, aligned with their own temperaments, their well-being. Um, and that's something that I think is missing from some financial firms where there's just this over-focus on the numbers. So we wanted to take this complete picture. We wanted to sometimes be able to say to a client, you know what? You've saved enough for retirement. 
You don't often hear a financial advisor saying that in part, again, because of the fear of the worst thing you can do for a client is have them run out of money. So better to just have them have excess money. But that has its problems, too. I've had 89-year-olds I've known who've wound up with a lot of money feeling like, well, if only I had known I, would gonna, I was going to wind up with this much, I would have spent more in my 60s and 70s when I had the ability to do really fun vacations, for example, or interesting philanthropy. I think that's such an excellent point and very focused on, I love that you used the word earlier, wholesome, as opposed to holistic, because I do think that captures more the quality of the life, that it feel wholesome, that everything's integrated. So that's pretty cool. Yes. It's like challenging clients sometimes. Why are you buying the second home? Why are you doing this? Like we're trying to get underneath to really make sure that the things they're trying to achieve or save money for are really aligned with who they are. And that takes also us letting go of our biases. Those biases can really influence the outcomes that happen with you because a financial advisor might be like, oh yeah, leverage yourself up. That's totally the right thing to do. Other financial advisor would be no, no leverage or very little leverage, or you don't necessarily need that second home. So it's really, it's not my decision as to whether this person should buy a second home or buy a fancy car. It's only I'm out there trying to make sure that it's aligned with their values to buy that fancy car or second home or third home. Um, So I have to let go of, I might not be a believer in second homes for myself or third homes for myself or, you know, having boats and airplanes and all kinds of stuff like that. So that's what I mean by letting go of one's bias. So, you know, we talk a lot about leadership here and leadership journeys. And so I guess one question I have about your own journey is, did you intend to build a big firm or were you really just thinking it was going to be solo or small? And how did that all unfold? Yeah, wow, you're taking me back to some pivotal moments. So I grew the firm to about five employees, uh, plus me, so there were six of us. And that felt pretty good to me at the time. And you know, that's actually a decent size independent financial advisory firm. Many of them are just one or two people, I'd say most of them. And then I had the great fortune of meeting Brent Kessel. And it was at a time in my life when I was starting to recognize that while it's great to be at the top of the mountain, it's lonely at the top. And I wanted a colleague who was sitting in the same kind of seat as me, who could see things from the same vantage point, uh, and we could we could help b- build the firm together instead of just doing it all alone. I think I also had some, maybe some subconscious sense that I'm not good at everything, and I I need other skill sets in here to 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 lead this firm. But I didn't have uh, necessarily a, a, like this grand vision of how the firm was going to grow. That that didn't seem like imperative to me that we become a firm of a hundred employees or something like that. Uh, and then in, in Brett and I became friends first, which I think was really key, is we really got to know each other really well to make sure we were aligned with each other. He brought a much more process-oriented skill set. And in fact, at some point, I recognized that I was no longer the best CEO for the company, that I was more um, visionary, more the person who was really good at connecting, bringing on advisors, bringing on clients leading the firm from that visionary perspective, 
but I became less skilled as the firm got bigger on all the processes that need to be put into place, all the rules that need to be. It sounds like classic entrepreneurship going from that first stage of it's chaos and it's all about product market fit and who are our people and how do we reach them and why do they buy from us? And then all of a sudden you start to scale and you realize, oh, we're not set up to scale. We don't have processes, practices, systems. Yes. And the entrepreneur in me was like, chaos, this this feels fine. Why are you guys getting upset about the chaos? I, I like it. So what that, you know, I had to or you had to sweep the floors, do something you didn't want to do. That's all in the fun of it. Like, yeah. Like, and let's make exceptions to everything we're going to do. Because, oh, right? gosh, that's so common. Because it's like, let's let's give the clients what they want. Let's have, you know, 20 different client agreement letters that, you know, are, are individualized for each person. Uh, yeah, let's do all that because it's fun. And and I love the chaos. I love all the differences. I can kind of extrapolate some of your leadership principles from this conversation. Like you like customization, you like focus on the clients. You're all about the people experience. I, I heard you say also make it a place where people are happy working. And so, you know, those were, I think, some of the original leadership values or principles that you carried. What else did you notice happening to you as you were more and more in that kind of executive role? And maybe the million dollar question is, what did you learn about yourself? Okay, so one big learning, um, which is it's bringing up some emotion just thinking about this, is that I am not very good at recognizing sometimes my own talents, my own abilities, because I think what I do well is easy for me. And I overvalue someone else's ability to like understand technology and, and be able to pick the right software program for our firm. I overweight that and undermine myself. So that was something I had to work through of really seeing that I'm bringing as much value as my co-founder is, as the other players are bringing, even though I'm not as good, I'm not as strong in the tech tech arenas, but I'm bringing other things that are easy for me, me, but not so easy for them. Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. I know I've had the experience, I had a conversation even with my daughter, who's 21 recently, about the same thing, which is when something comes so easily to us, we're unconsciously competent, and we think, well, everybody should do this. And so that, you know, what you're describing is that practice of bringing your competence into your conscious awareness, like recognizing and yes. owning what you are good at as separate yes. from what others in the business are good at. And that actually is a very powerful leadership lesson. Yes, that's really important because then you'll value yourself much more fairly and you'll see yourself as this equal to others, which is so important in the business world, especially as one gets into leadership where there's all this jockeying for position. Uh, And I think that the other thing I've learned um, is to really trust your intuition and surround yourself with people, hire people who are willing to hear different points of view. So the biggest mistakes I've made in terms of hiring, especially on the leadership level, is again around overweighting somebody's raw skills and intelligence over their emotional intelligence, over their ability to listen. Those qualities of awareness, those qualities of emotional intelligence, communication, those are paramount at a leadership level. And I discounted them and hired some pe- some leaders that should not have been leaders at our company. And mm. it, it, it didn't go well. Uh, and that was like a culture fit issue? The culture fit, this, this, 
they created a culture, some of these people where it's like, well, here's the way we're going to do it. And I don't want to hear any second guessing of how I think we should do these things because I know, for example, technology better than everyone in the firm. That might be true, but I still want technology leaders and other leaders in the company who are willing to listen to other perspectives and hear them and take them in. And these leaders were not able to do that. And it had some serious consequences for our firm, um, serious fallout and, and just yeah, messed up the kind of some of the harmony. So we had to sift through all that. There, you know, there was a letting go of a few partners and coming into a firm that's much more aligned, much more harmonious, much more built around people who have great emotional intelligence skills. It really comes down to one of our core values is um, this ability to listen deeply and speak with care. And that sounds like so trite, but it's, I just want to emphasize, make sure the people you're hiring at the leadership level can do those two things well. I don't think you're alone in that uh, tending to overvalue, especially in technical areas. I've seen that a lot with CFOs in companies that people will come in because they have the technical talent, they have the business experience. But a lot of times, CEOs don't think about whether their CFO is a good culture fit. Yes. And the CFO has so much power in every organization. So just I'm, I'm in my mind imagining the way the firm felt before you were able to kind of move those partners out mm-hmm. and the way it felt after. And I wonder if you could just describe the impact on the other employees as you understood it. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't think it was just like it went from bad to great. I think that's an oversimplification. But I think what it represented was that this is a firm where there's going to be safety with communication, that even if you're at the very top of the firm, your position is not guaranteed if you're not a good listener. And that that is so valued here that in order for you to keep your job, you have to learn how to do that. You have to learn that your perspective might not be the only perspective and may not be the best perspective. And that I think what people sensed is this shift to this more of this firm mentality instead of seeing it as this firm of who's going to get rewarded for coming up with the right idea, because that's a different kind of culture. And I think that was a very healthy movement and allowed people to feel so much safer. And, you know, it's making me think about the Google study on psychological safety, where they looked at teams and the most successful teams were not the teams of the smartest people, the most skillful people. It was the teams where everyone felt included. I was just thinking about that project, Aristotle project, when you were talking that, yeah, and you were, you guys were ahead of the curve on that, I think, in terms of being aware that, or at least choosing that those values would be core to your business. Definitely. I mean, it's, I think we have a culture of where people like hanging out with each other. It's one of the criteria we say, is this somebody I want to hang out with, especially at the leadership level? And a lot, I mean, across the board, at the leadership level, at the lower levels in the company, people do a lot of social things together um, where we do a lot of kind of partner retreats, firm-wide retreats, uh, and we make those events really fun. Uh, so I think that's something that has come out of it is everyone feels this sense that they're valued and there isn't such a top-down thing at our firm. I've always also put out the message that the newest people, especially those at the very bottom, are your most valuable people because they're seeing things with fresh eyes. 
So you want to really listen to someone in the first six months of them joining you. What are they noticing? That's great intelligence there. That is great intelligence. And those people are often, their views are often dismissed. Oh, that person just started. Don't listen. No, listen to them. It's basically about approaching a situation with curiosity and a learning mindset so that you're not coming in with with too many preformed assumptions. Yeah, I was going to say that it's a beautiful thing to see a client, to see each person, each employee in this new way and not bring all your associations, especially your negative associations or pegging them as being a certain kind of person to see them with those fresh eyes is a beautiful thing to do. Yeah, that is true. So let's see, at some point you said at a certain point in the firm's growth, you decided that you probably weren't the best CEO. How large was the organization at that time? And how did you come to that decision? Yeah. So it was about 20 people. And I realized that I, well, the things that I really love doing, like bringing on clients, new advisors, those things were getting um, the short end of the stick because I was focused more on these big, uh, on all these management issues, um, leaders not getting along with each other, financial plans not getting done properly. Those were the issues that I was pertaining myself to. And I also realized that I don't have that kind of, we talked about all the exceptions I was making, that consistency mindset of how to create those systematic processes for everything. And you need that more and more as you as you become a firm of 20 people and larger, um, you need to have uniformity with things. So it was a hard thing because I, you know, I could write today. I don't have, I don't feel any attachment to so much a title today, but back then, like letting go of that CEO just rolls off the tongue nicely, doesn't it? From our cultural thing, it's like CEO. Yeah. It's like Ooh. that gets you in the door, gets it you a does. restaurant you reservation. You get a good table at a restaurant. Yeah, 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 exactly. And letting go of that was not simple for me. It felt like such a, a demotion in some ways. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I don't see it that way at all anymore. I don't see CEO as higher than sort of any other kind of position in the company. It's all about getting yourself into the right position so that you can give your gifts to the world so you can flourish. Uh, And I was no longer flourishing. I was stressed. The company was stressed. I imagine all that stress was really unpleasant. And so that the harmony that you had enjoyed, you weren't feeling it inside or maybe outside. But still, it's a tough, tough thing to face in yourself to say, oh, I like this because it's a title and I feel good about it. So that's a, I mean, I'd almost describe it as kind of peeling away some layers of ego. So I guess, how did you come to peace with that? I mean, I had my co-founder who I, at that point, I had gained enough trust with to see that he had more of the skills that were needed at this level. And he had this drive to put processes in place I mean, I think probably my meditation practice helped as well because meditation is often so much about letting go of our identities, you know, not being so attached to the labels of things or how things exactly look on the outside, but more feeling the inside. And the truth was that as I sat with it and really felt my insides, I felt way better at that point, not being in the COC. So your meditation practice, is this a daily thing for you or what, how would you just briefly kind of describe it for folks? Yeah, it is a daily practice. 
And I, you know, my favorite word lately is the word interrupt. And because I think we get into patterns with our behaviors, with our thoughts. And that's a lot of what meditation is, is interrupting patterns. Because you can sit down and just let yourself go into a fantasy and just play out that fantasy for 20 minutes or an hour or two hours. Meditation is really about noticing that fantasy and becoming aware of it and letting go of it or letting go of the paranoia, you know, about what's going to happen to the business or to me if I'm no longer the CEO of this company. So all that mental chatter that's just running through your mind when you sit quietly, that's what allowed you to become aware? Yes. Yes. It's almost like you're letting all that chatter settle and you're feeling what's underneath that chatter. And I said, wow, I actually feel better about this idea of moving into my strongest skill sets, of giving myself more space in life, that this is the CEO job is a, is a wonderful opportunity for someone at some point in their life. But it's a commitment that where you're committed to juggling 50 balls every day. And now it's those particular balls are not as exciting for me to juggle or at that time. So I, I, I made the decision and it wasn't immediately easy, but it became easier as I sat with it in meditation. Yeah, I can, I can believe that. So while we're on the topic of this, I'm just, you know, we, we do like to poke behind the curtain a little bit. Mm. So what, what's been the hardest personal truth that you had to face? Yeah, at some point, I actually made the decision to lower my salary a little bit. Um, this was post-CEO, and I volunteered to lower my salary. And that was a very vulnerable thing, because what kind of message is that sending to people? On the one hand, it's like, oh, wow, Spencer's willing to lower his salary. That's pretty great. More profits to the company. On the other hand, is it sending a message like Spencer, even he thinks he's less valuable to the company. But I think for me, what it represented at that point is, first of all, the awareness that making that full salary wasn't as critical to me at that point in my life. Maybe it never was so critical, but I had grown up with an overfocus on money. And two, this recognition that I wanted more spaciousness in my life. And for me, dropping my salary a little bit was a way for me to put a little less pressure on myself. And it did, it was a vulnerable thing because. People did question it, both in positive ways and negative ways. So uh, I think Abacus, I don't know if you described it or it's written this way on the website, I don't remember, but it's a B Corp with Buddhist values. <laughs> and I wonder, like, I think most of us, we've, we've talked with CEOs of B Corps before, but Buddhism, I'm not sure most people would think about Buddhism in relationship to a finance firm. So maybe a comment or two and how you think it's influenced the culture and the leadership practices at the company. Yes, it, it so folds in, actually. Buddhist values, Buddhist um, philosophy, psychology, very much folds into the business world. And in fact, Isra Sharp, Sharp the founder, CEO of um, the Four Seasons Hotel chain, he very much has written about using Buddhist values in the hotels and the way he treats employees and everything. So for us at Abacus, Buddhist values are represented in many things. One is that there's impermanence is here to stay, that with investing, there's ups and downs, and that's going to happen. There's going to be setbacks in life. And recognizing that in advance with clients and setting up their lives so that they're least impacted by the ups and downs, 
but knowing in advance, we're not going to make you immune from the ups and downs. That that's sort of part of life is, I think, a very important thing uh, to understand from a financial perspective. And then another Buddhist value is about humility, is about being humble, especially when you're at the top as a leader. And so that has driven a lot of my leadership qualities is to be humble, to serve others, another one of our values. But that includes serving not just the clients, but also the employees, is to see that sometimes an employee might have an idea that's better than my own. And it shows up in our investment philosophy at Abacus. So we don't believe that anyone has the ability to forecast the markets, to pick the next winning stock, um, or certainly pick the next winning cryptocurrency. And for that reason, we take this very kind of humble approach of investing in everything, of spreading our money out into many baskets, not putting all our eggs in one basket. And then this mindfulness, this presence is, I think sometimes in our industry and as a financial advisor, there's an over-focus on the future. And we want our advisors, our staff to also be focused on the present, which is a big part of Buddhist philosophy, is living well in this present moment and not just, oh, I'm going to work endlessly, save every cent I can, eat beans and rice, and then I'll have this incredible retirement little exaggeration here, but yeah. <laughs> that's a little bit of a mindset of that you come out of financial advisor training with, of just pushing people for the future and to, to make sure that our advisors are also training their attention on the client's present life as well. So are there practices inside the company, inside Abacus, that reinforce this staying in the present? What kind of things do you as leaders or, or does the company do? Yeah. So every morning I lead a mindfulness practice at Abacus. Uh, Every morning. Yes. Yes. It's just five minutes. It's at 8.55 a.m. So people can get to their 9 a.m. meetings. And in those five minutes, and at first I did the same thing. I laughed just like you're laughing right now. I laughed like, how could five minutes be very effective? But yet a lot can happen in those five minutes. And there have actually been some studies done John Kabat-Zinn and BSR has done some studies around the benefits of even short doses of mindfulness over several months can actually lead to more focus, less reactivity, more resilience. You know, these are other qualities from Buddhism of like not being reactive. So when a colleague sends you an email and you're about to fire back an angry email because you can't believe they just sent you that email, you can you learn to pause, reread the email. If it still seems like an offensive email, maybe put it away for a few hours, maybe show it to somebody else, and then offering a response um, is much better than the usual thing we do. That is great. That's a really good example. And just to be clear to everyone, I was not laughing like that's so dumb. I was laughing like how smart that is and what a great practice. Because for one thing, being together in a moment, in real time, makes a difference. And I know you've got advisors all over the country. So that time is a different time for everyone. So people, you know, but it's a time to be together and have that just moment of pure, I am in the present with you. Yes. I am Yes. Quiet. And that's, you know, another one of our values, right, is, is listen deeply and speak with care. And it's, it's that listen deeply, like you use the term, which is a Buddhist term, um, beginner's mind, that is part of listening deeply 
is really clearing out all your ideas, not rehearsing what you're going to say as the other person is speaking, both with colleagues and with clients. That A lot of that comes from Buddhist philosophy. Um, yeah, and there was an article that um, Barron's did on, on our firm about us being this kind of Buddhist financial advisor, which is a little bit funny because, you know, it's like most of 95% of our clients are not Buddhist at all. But right. I think just like 95% of the people who stay at the Four Seasons are not Buddhist. But I think people appreciate the values that, that we bring from Buddhism to the firm, um, these values of presence, these values of beginner's mind, of really listening deeply, of valuing the present as much as the client's future. Um, all those things, I think, have been um, very helpful in terms of the culture we've built and the value that we've created for our clients. That's just incredible. So if you could speak to your younger self, uh, what would you, what do you wish you could have told yourself about yourself or about leading? Speak up. So often I was afraid to speak up and say what, that I had a different opinion because I felt like the person had more knowledge than me in that particular arena or they had a stronger, like literally a stronger voice, a lot more confidence around that issue. And, or maybe I was sharing something that was unpopular. And I would say to really speak up. And yeah, when you don't think that something is right and to really give yourself permission to know that if you're at the company, the company wants you to speak up. And if the company doesn't want you to speak up, maybe that's not a good organization for you to be in. because. I want to be at a place where everyone's voice is valued. So I think that's what I would tell my younger self is really to trust yourself when you have a difference of opinion. Um, that experience does count. I mean, I think sometimes we've tended to discount that in the current age where it seems like, you know, the 25-year-olds are making more money than the 50-year-olds because of tech. Um, but there's still something in the business world that that 50-year-old brings and to not discount the experience you bring, that that other person might know tech better than you, but you have a sense of what's going to work in the culture, what's going to work for your clients, and that might override a certain tech solution. Definitely true. And I think the more executives can lead with curiosity about other people's perspectives. So if someone does have a different view, tell me more. Help me understand where that came from. Why is this important to you? These kinds of conversations, I think, are they're very meaningful to, to, I think, to all employees, but particularly seem really important to employees of the last couple generations. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think we just have to own it and honor it. So, you know, the title of the podcast is To Lead as Human. And so, Spencer, what does this mean to you, To Lead as Human? That's funny, because before I came on, I was like leaning into what, is, what does this mean to you, Sharon? And now you're asking me. What does it mean to lead as human? I mean, to me, it means everything we've been speaking about is that to lead is to be open-minded, to be respectful, to see everyone as a human being, to see everyone's voice as being valuable, to values of compassion, you know, another, that's a higher emotion from Buddhism, but certainly, I mean, everything from Buddhism is in every other spiritual tr tradition as well. Um, that these values, like Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn talks a lot about compassion, that these values make the firm money. And of course, we know today that so many huge firms are spending a lot of money on mindfulness 
because it makes a difference. They're not doing it just to be nice. They're doing it because it's making a difference in the bottom line. They have happier people at work. Um, They have more focused people at work. They have people that are less reactive, more resilient at work. So I think there's this opportunity we have to have a really happy culture. I mean, we forget that we spend so much of our waking hours at work. Like, isn't it sad to say when you're 65, wow, I never really loved working, but I made a lot of money. Like, what about if you said, I loved being at work. I loved what I did at work. Yeah, maybe I could have made a little bit more money, but I had a great time. I, you know, I completely transformed as a human being. That's what I want to be able to say when I get to be 65, right? Totally. And I think it's, we're seeing today that talent is so important. That's what drives success. And the way to drive talent is to have a culture where you're really putting that emphasis on everybody's human abilities. I mean, one of the things that I've always said is to every leader at Abacus is make sure that everybody who reports to you is doing their favorite activities on a regular basis. If someone loves to ski, make sure they're skiing. Find out what they love doing outside of work and then make sure they do it. I mean, that is worth so much. If 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 employee knows like, wow, my boss wants me to go skiing this weekend or wants me to be surfing before I come to work. Like you want to have turned on people, happy people who are like, I love this place because they support me in doing the things that I'm really most passionate about. Yeah. And I know, especially in a lot of tech firms, uh, younger, newer employees can feel like it's all about the grind and that that's all their, their managers care about. But at one of my client companies recently, actually, the head of the VP of engineering addressed one of the engineers and said, I need you to take three days off this weekend. Go away. Goodbye. You need a break. And they were stunned and deeply appreciative. Yeah. Like, why aren't you finding out what people love to do and making sure they do it? It's like, that's a path to joy. And there's been so many studies about what results from joy when we're in that place. Everyone wants to be around that employee when they're joyful and they've just come in back from surfing and they're joyful. Like you want that person in your company. So make that part of your business protocols. Just to uh, answer your almost question about what it means to me to lead as human. Mm. Part of it is in it. It's a lot of what you said, but also that we're just human beings. We're a little fallible. We're not perfect. We don't have to be perfect. And it's natural. It's the natural state of people to lead and follow, not always at the same time and in the same place. And so being comfortable flexing into leadership, I think, is really important at all levels in a company because you're you're influencing the direction of the organization, the direction of your colleagues and your own direction by what you bring. And so there's a piece of it that is, uh, you know, leadership isn't something precious that only a few people get to do. And the other side of it is, And the people who do it don't have to be perfect. We should not be holding leaders to a perfection standard. I love what you're saying. I want to say two things about that. One is that this, this, that we're imperfect is actually the perfect thing to recognize within a company. And our culture is not, does not really value imperfection. We want perfection. And yet that it's not possible. There is imperfection. It's part of the universe. It's in nature. You've got to create a culture where there's the space for people to to fail. That failing is is okay. It's okay if you don't 
look good every day. And I think some of the people who have not flourished at Abacus are those people who were not able to admit failure. They just couldn't do it because they were so stuck on this idea that if they admit failure, it means they're maybe no longer a human being. Like they're just, it's, it's a sign of ultimate failure that we need to somehow create a culture where it's really, we're going to reward you actually for being able to fail in a healthy way to say, yeah, that didn't go well. I did that. I've learned from it and I'm doing it different next time. I want that kind of leader in my company. I do too. And we unfortunately hired some people who could not accept failure in themselves or in others. And that's not a fun place to work. It's not to lead as human, right? No, I actually am sure that there are people listening going, oh, that is not, that's what like where I am and I don't like it that way. So I'm hoping this will inspire some people to think more broadly. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to say is about is that you hinted at is, is this sense that we've been using the word leaders, but really when I use that word, it's really about all of us becoming leaders or taking on this entrepreneurial mindset of if the company was all mine, what would I be doing? You know, how do I come into work and not feel like I'm at the effect of everybody, but I'm actually the leader here, that I'm, I'm the bright light in the room. I can make things happen. I can influence my coworkers. I can influence my boss to be a better boss. And, you know, it's like, that's how could I take on that leadership? And it's almost like, you know, I've, I've done a bit of ballroom dancing in my life. You don't know who's leading and following eventually, you know, because you start to give feedback to your boss. Um, and if you've got a good bo- boss, they're accepting that feedback. You're flowing with that person. And there's no longer a clear sense of leadership. And to me, that's a brilliant place to get to where there's not that explicit hierarchy in place so that there's this ultimate safety and everybody's driving this company as if they're a leader, they're responsible for its success. Perfect. So um, as we wrap up, I always like to give every guest a chance to say, is there one piece of advice that you would share now with our listeners who want to be more successful in their executive roles and build workplaces that are more fully human? Well, I'm thinking about, can I say a four-letter word on, on the air? You can say whatever you want. Okay. So my four-letter word, it's actually an acronym. It's UPOD, U-P-O-D. It's, I think, my favorite thing in the world. It stands for under promise over deliver. <laughs> and I've been teaching this. And it's a simple idea, but it, it takes something to really take on the practice of UPOD. Because we've all been trained to do OPUD, which is overpromise, underdeliver. That's so when when you ask me, Spencer, uh, when when am I going to see the financial report? I'm going to say tomorrow because that's what that's our wiring in this culture. It's our wiring as human beings. I want to please you before you even tell me when you need the report. I'm going to I'm going to say I'll get it to you tomorrow. And instead, what if I say to you, I'll get it to you next week? Give myself the spaciousness. Give myself the ability to to know that if I tell you tomorrow, that means when I go to talk to Sally and Charlie, who I need their input to get that report, I'm putting them under tremendous pressure. Look what that does to my organization. And then I'm saying to Charlie, Charlie, I need the answer because I told Sharon that I was going to get her the report tomorrow, right? I'm creating a whole avalanche of stress in the company. Mm, And instead, this UPOT idea 
is creating spaciousness, but it's not simple. So I've been training our employees on how do you do that? How do you tell a client, I'm going to deliver the report in a week? I think maybe it's happened once where somebody kind of questioned, why is it taking a week? No one ever questions this. We have these assumptions in our mind about when they, what their expectations are, but it's really just about what we say. When the doctor says, yeah, you come back for the second visit then, or I'm going to have the report then, we don't question it so much. Um, and it's equivalent to when you tell your spouse, I'm going to be home in 20 minutes, but that 20 minutes is only if every green light happens and you don't run into anybody, right? That is the bane of my existence. Yeah, right? I, I need to I need to oopod on my time promises to my family. Well, try it time. out. You could try it I'm out gonna today. I'm going to do it today. Tell them you're going to be home at seven o'clock when you're going to know you're going to be home at six and get home at 6.15. And it just feels, oh, wow, you're home 45 oh, minutes totally early. Doing Believe you me, that's on my agenda for the day. So thanks for that. In addition to all the all the wonderful dialogue and really, Spencer, I can hardly thank you enough. So formally, I'm going to say a special thank you to Spencer Sherman for our amazing conversation today. Now, I know listeners are going to want to find out more about you and what you're up to. So where should they go to learn about you? Yeah, so I've got two websites. So one is spencer-sherman.com, spencer-sherman.com. That's my speaking website. If you're looking to have me speak or you want to attend one of my programs, that's the place to go. And then my Abacus website is abacuswealth.com, abacuswealth.com. So check it out. Feel free to reach out to me if anybody has a question. And it's just been delightful, Sharon. I think you're doing such powerful work Everybody should be listening to the show. I should have listened to this show 20 years ago. Well, it only My started in December, but okay. okay. Well, <laughs> so well, in December. Well, we're going to both spread the word far and wide. And, and all you guys listening, if you value what you're hearing, spread it along with us. So Spencer, thanks so much for joining me today. And I hope to see you soon in person. Definitely. We'll make it happen. Please stay with us for a moment and I'll share some takeaways and a coaching tip that will help you uplevel your own leadership. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. So with Spencer, while we talked about quite a few really important leadership lessons, I particularly want to focus on one gift I think he gave us, which is looking deeply inside himself and sharing some of his inner experience in a very personal way. So three particular things I want to call out. The first is knowing what your core principles and values are is so important to leading in a way that feels authentic to you. And so in Spencer's case, it's Buddhist principles, but it could be any set of principles or values that you take the time to identify and then check yourself. Am I living by my values? And am I using those values to think about how we deliver service to clients and how we manage employees, how we treat each other? So that's one really powerful takeaway. The second one is 
We know self-awareness is important, but I think Spencer shared a piece of self-awareness with us that we haven't talked with previous guests about, and that is recognizing when the job you're in is not really the job you love anymore, and the bravery of, as the CEO saying, you know, this job does not take advantage of my greatest skills, and it's not the job I love doing. And if you've listened for a while, you might remember a conversation with Dart Lindsley way back when about how we craft jobs so that they map to what people love doing and care about. I think Spencer's just a great example of overcoming the ego noises about giving up such an important title and important job, even to the point of at a certain time deciding he could reduce his salary in part as a way to signal to himself I can pull back a little. And I just think that's brave. It's courageous. It's powerful. And I really appreciate his sharing that inner story with us. And the third takeaway is even more about the kind of self-talk we all have that can be really debilitating. And so um, Spencer shared with us that he had this kind of long standing mindset that what he was good at was easy and what other people were good at was hard and therefore more important. And he was, as he said to us, overvaluing what others could do and undervaluing what he was bringing to the table. Now, that may not be the kind of self-talk that you have to face in your own leadership. So here's the tip for today. And this is our practice. Now, usually I say, here's something you can do over the next week or so. But this one, I'm going to say, you can actually do this now. So if you want to, um, I would like you to think for just a moment about your own self-talk. And what are the things you say to yourself that are critical and and maybe hold you back? You can pause this recording right now if you need 30 seconds or so to come up with it. Although I bet you know right away what you say to yourself that is mean. And I want you to ask yourself, would you ever say this to a child that you love? Would you ever say this to your best friend? And why would you say it to yourself? So my closing tip is a little compassion and a little empathy for what we all have, negative self-talk and judgments that can really hold us back. And in this episode, I hope what you're taking away is you can maybe drop some of that self-talk too. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. The amazing Andrew Chapman assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. Hey, make sure you don't miss these upcoming episodes, especially the next one, which is going to be a special treat. And follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you found something valuable in today's conversation or the takeaways, please take a second and leave us a starred review. And even more important, share it with your colleagues or tell a person or two about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better for everyone. Thank you so much for joining today. And we'll see you next time on To Lead as Human. Miracy.
I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.